My friends, we continue to uh, consider how God opens the door of the kingdom to the Gentiles. We saw it first with Philip baptizing the eunuch. What does hinder me from being baptized, said the eunuch. And Philip could think of nothing, because he knew that salvation was in Christ alone, and that the eunuch did not need to become a proselyte to the Jewish religion in order to be saved. And then God commissioned Paul to preach to the Gentiles, to carry his name to the ends of the earth. And then Peter, last week, baptized the household, the family of Cornelius. A Gentile, an uncircumcised Gentile. And yet, Peter says, again, what would hinder us from baptizing these people? After all, the spirit baptism has happened to them just as it happened to us. And if they have the reality, then why not the sign? That, of course, led us to to think something about what baptism actually is. You'll remember that we spent quite some time on that. That spirit baptism is the reality that the Spirit of God comes down on people and cleanses them and washes them. And because of that, God has also instituted the sign of baptism, which is also a sign of spirit of cleansing. And that uh, you'll remember that our understanding of what baptism is also helped us to, under, to understand and to answer the question of who should be baptized. Well, what a, what a moment that must have been for Peter. You can imagine how his thoughts must have, must have turned back again and again to that hour in Cornelius' household when with astonishment they saw the Spirit of God coming down on these people. But at any rate, it's time for Peter now to return home. Do you remember, children, where home was for Peter? Home was in Jerusalem. And I have to believe that just as Peter uh, was gladdened to see the Gentiles brought into the faith, that he probably trembled a bit when he thought about going back to Jerusalem. Peter was not a man of great courage. Peter was a very different person than the Apostle Paul. And as he thought about going back to Jerusalem and facing the apostles there, facing the leadership of the Jerusalem church, I have to believe that he felt a little twinge of fear in his mind. How is this going to go? What are they going to do? Well, they were. Peter had good reason to fear. We read in the very first verse of chapter 11 that the apostles and the brethren who were, who were, uh, who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. Now remember, my friends, that, that none of these apostles and, and people in Jerusalem would have been upset that the Gentiles received the word of God. They would have been as glad to hear that as anyone. Their issue was that if you're going to receive the word of God and you want to be a saved person, if you want to have your sins forgiven, you have to now also perform the, the rites and the rituals of the Jewish religion. You have to submit to, uh, to circumcision. You have to keep the Saturday Sabbath. You have to observe the food laws. Now, even if some of those rituals had, were beginning, like again, we notice that even Peter stayed at the house of Simon the Tanner. Remember that? And Simon the Tanner would have been a man, a very unclean place with all the animals, all the dead animals he was constantly touching. He was almost always unclean, right? So it does seem that even in the Jewish Christian community, they were beginning to downplay some of the 
shall we call them, the lesser important of these Jewish rituals, still circumcision, Sabbath observance, right? These were things that were not going to be let go. And so the, the apostles and in, 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 uh, Jewish leaders, the leadership of the Jewish Christian church in Jerusalem would not have had a problem with them receiving the word of God. But notice in verse 2, here's the objection. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those who were circumcised took issue with him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. No problem with going to people and eating with them, but they need to be Jewish people. They need to be circumcised. They need to become proselytes to the Jewish religion. But Peter, what are you doing? You went and had a, a meal, fellowship. And again, that was a very intimate thing in those days, right? Having a meal with somebody. You went and had a meal with uncircumcised Gentiles. Now, Peter has to give an account now. Peter has to give a reckoning for his actions. And of course, he does that by relating this vision that he had received. He does this by talking about what happened when he preached at, in Cornelius' household, right? And he says, the Holy Spirit fell upon them just as he did upon us. And my friends, when the Spirit of God falls on people, Peter's saying to these Jewish people, that's like God saying, these are my people. That's like the finger of God pointing to these people and saying, these are my people. They are saved. Their sins are forgiven. They've been baptized in my Spirit. And then again, the, 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 the logical thought in Peter's mind is, well then, they can receive the sign. They can receive water baptism. They can be admitted to the visible fellowship of our of our assemblies. Because God has pointed them out as being Christians. And I, I found it very interesting what Peter says there in, in uh, uh, verse 17. And I think this takes us back to last week, doesn't it? Verse 17, Therefore, if God gave to them the same gift as he gave to us also, after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way. In other words, God has, with his finger, pointed, these are my people. Don't you call unclean what I have cleansed by the baptism of my spirit. I've cleansed them. Now don't you call them unclean. And Peter says, who am I to stand in the way of God? Again, you, even, you can even hear that Peter himself was reluctant to do this. Even Peter himself was like, boy, isn't that going too far? I mean, Certainly, okay, even if they don't have to keep all the Jewish rituals, at least let them be circumcised. I mean, we, we can't give up that. But no, God says, don't you call unclean what I have cleansed. Well, then uh, we read the happy news in verse 18. When they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. Why, there must have been so much joy in their circles, right, when they realized that it wasn't them doing this. God himself had opened the door to the Gentiles. Now, my friends, there's also a darker side to verse 18. There's also a darker side to verse 18. And that is that at this point in the Christian church, a division comes. This, you might say, is the first split, the first schism that happens in the Christian church. Because just as there were those, thank God, who rejoiced that God had given repentance to the Gentiles, so there were also those who refused to accept it. They refused to believe. Now, these were still Christian people, mind you. They're not Jews, right? They were Christian people. They believed in Christ, but they believed that in order to have your sins forgiven, 
in order to be counted amongst the people of God, the saved people of God, you had to be circumcised. And later, we, uh, we have a name for these people. We call them Judaizers, right? Judaizers are Christian people who believe that in order to be a Christian, a true Christian, you have to adopt at least some of the more important Jewish rituals. And now you see this division taking place in the Christian church. Off to the right goes these people, okay, who are now Judaizers. And off this direction are these people who rejoice that God himself has opened the door of his kingdom to Gentiles, and that without them becoming proselytes to the Jewish religion. Well then, there we have uh, this uh, issue, my friends, that really in the whole rest of the New Testament, the whole book of Galatians is written to deal with, those, with these people. The whole book of Galatians. Later in Acts 15, we're going to have the Council of Jerusalem, that meeting, again, dealing with this issue. This was the issue that you might say, uh, it was that lightning rod issue in the New Testament that pretty much all the controversy surrounds. Now, there were other controversies too, but this is the big one. What is the place of the Gentiles in the Christian church? Well, let's proceed then to uh, Acts, 11, or Acts 11 and verse 19. Because now we get to the further spreading of the gospel. That the very persecution which was meant to shut down the Christian religion ends up scattering it even farther. And now we're told in verse 19, verse 19, that some of the Christians made their way to Phoenicia. Now Phoenicia would have been the cities of Tyre and Sidon. Remember the Phoenicians were the merchants of the day. They were the, the salesmen, the merchants, the wealthy people who uh, especially used the Mediterranean Sea as their superhighway to conduct uh, business with Rome, with Greece, as far away as Spain, they founded the city of Carthage, remember. In fact, you remember in your study of history, the Punic Wars. The Punic Wars was the Carthaginians versus the Romans, remember? Hannibal, you can't forget Hannibal, right? The Punic, well, the word Punic is Phoenician. That, comes from a, that basically means Phoenician. Because they were Phoenician people who settled in, in uh, Carthage. So some of these people go to Tyre and Sidon. Some of these people end up in Cyprus. Now, again, if you go just a little bit off the coast of the east coast uh, of uh, the Mediterranean Sea there, and, uh, and then you have the island of Cyprus. Cyprus is important because that was the birthplace of Barnabas. And then, last of all, we're told that some of the Christians made their way to Antioch. But then, notice that next line, speaking the word, okay, the last line of verse 19, speaking the word to no one except to Jews alone. Again, these people have still not yet grasped the, the fact that God has opened the door to the Gentiles, a fact which seems to us so obvious that came slowly in the minds of those people. You have to constantly keep that in your mind, congregation, that these things didn't just happen in a moment. It happened slowly. So these Christians, as they leave, they begin to preach Christ, but they only preach him to Jewish people. But, Verse 20, there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, <coughs> who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus. Now isn't that interesting, my friends, that there are some of these people, and we're told that they're from Cyprus and Cyrene, who throw off this inhibition, right? Who throw off this boundary. 
They don't speak just to the Jews. They immediately begin speaking to the Greeks as well. And again, it's the same logic in their minds. If salvation is in Christ alone, and if you don't need to proselyte to the Jewish religion to be a Christian, well, then why shouldn't I speak to everybody? Why should we speak to just Jews? And in fact, my friends, I would, I would even go so far as to say that these lay preachers, as they were, in a sense, were farther ahead on this point than some of the apostles themselves. Even the apostles were not yet as far as some of these lay people who began to go off into these cities and began to preach Christ to everyone. You can see that it was in verse 1 of chapter 11, right? Now the apostles and the brethren, right? They were the ones who called Peter to a reckoning. Even the apostles. Again, we can conclude that some of them may have been James and John perhaps even, right? The, the, the pillars of the church at the time. You might say were even less uh, uh, aware of what God was doing in the church than these lay people, these simple lay people, who, because they had been driven out of Jerusalem and driven out of Judea by persecution, came to Antioch, and when they saw their next-door neighbor, they said, hey, have you heard the news about Jesus? Well, but he's a Greek, or he's a Gentile, or he's a Roman. Well, they continued to speak to him. Why shouldn't he hear about Jesus? Again, very interesting that some of these lay people may very well have been ahead of the apostles in their understanding of what God was doing in his church. That's very interesting. And maybe even a little humbling for us as elders and leadership of the church, right? That God works in many ways in the, lives of, in the lives of his people. Well, then we come to Barnabas. Barnabas, this, this, this again, a very interesting man, Barnabas. So, uh, when the news that the people in Antioch, that Gentiles are beginning to come to Christ, reaches Jerusalem. Again, there, there uh, wasn't the internet back then, but they sure had their uh, ways of getting news around, didn't they? Because uh, Jerusalem and Antioch were quite a long ways apart. Antioch, of course, well to the north of Jerusalem. And, uh, but anyway, at any rate, the news in verse 22 reaches the men in Jerusalem, and they send Barnabas. Remember before that when Philip was doing his evangelistic work in Samaria, the apostles sent Peter and John on a mission to oversee that work there and to make sure that it was going well. But now the apostles do the same thing with Barnabas. And they send Barnabas off to Antioch to oversee the work there. And notice what Barnabas, what his, uh, what his aim is. If you go to the end of verse 23, you can see what his, what his mission is. And began to encourage them all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. This is Barnabas's mission. He is there to make sure that these people remain true to the teachings of Jesus. Now, my friends, when you read the word Lord in the book of Acts and in, in Paul's letters, you should always understand that to be a reference to the second person of the Trinity, to Jesus. They always use the word Lord to refer to Jesus. And so here, Barnabas is now going to these Christians, these new Christians, these untaught, uncatechized Christians in Antioch, and he is encouraging them, he's exhorting them to remain true to the teaching of Jesus. Therein lies the problem. What is the teaching of Jesus? And immediately Barnabas sees the problem here. These Christians in Antioch are, are again, uh, the Gentiles for sure, were not only unlettered in the, untaught in the things of Jesus, 
They were not even taught in the things of the Old Testament. The Jews at least would have had a foundation in the Old Testament. They would have known the stories of Noah and David and Daniel and, and so on. But these Gentiles are as, are as untaught in these things uh, as anyone. And so Barnabas immediately sees the need for teaching. He sees the need for a teacher, someone to help him in instructing these people into the te- How can they remain true to the teachings of Jesus if they don't know what the teachings of Jesus are? And then the thought flashes into his mind. Paul. Paul. Barnabas thinks about Paul. And he makes tracks, right? Immediately, we, we read in verse 25, and he left for Tarsus to look for Saul. Remember that when Paul was converted on the way to Damascus, he had gone into the city of Damascus, Ananias had met him there, he had been baptized in Damascus, and immediately he had begun to preach Christ to the Jewish people in Damascus. But then the persecution got too hot for him there. Remember, he went to Jerusalem, he met with a few of the apostles, he began to preach the Christ in Jerusalem, the persecution got too hot for him in Jerusalem, and the apostles decided that it would be best if Paul went back to his home to his birthplace, which was Tarsus. And so Saul went back to Tarsus. Now, you'll remember that in Jerusalem, the apostles were terrified when Paul showed up. They were terrified. What is this? This man's trying to kill us all. But remember that it was Barnabas who took Paul by the hand and introduced them to the apostles and told the apostles who Paul was. That Paul is not the man you think he was. He's been converted. He's been transformed by the grace and the power of God He now preaches the very name he strove to stamp out. And of course, the apostles are delighted with that news. But at any rate, it still gets too hot for Paul in Jerusalem. And so Paul is sent off to Tarsus. And now it flashes through the mind of Barnabas. Paul is the man for this job. And Barnabas knows where Saul is. And so off Barnabas goes to Tarsus to go find his helper. And you know, uh, when you read the, the text here, if you kind of sense what's happening here, right? And he left for Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. It's like he didn't even ask. I'm sure he did, right? But the, but the text just gives you the sense that he found Paul, picked him up, and dragged him back to Antioch. This is where I need you. We need help here. These people are completely untaught. We desperately need teachers in Antioch. And so Paul goes to Antioch and immediately begins up, takes up the work there, And we read in verse 26, this is actually the text for the sermon this morning, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch, and for an entire year they met with the church and taught considerable numbers. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. So there is uh, the work of Barnabas. Quickly I want to also mention prophets, because we go on in verse 27 to read, Now at this time some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. Now, what is a prophet? A prophet in the New Testament times is very similar to a prophet in the Old Testament times. Remember, a prophet in the Old Testament was somebody who received a word from God and gave it to the people. Now, in the New Testament, there was also the same thing. There were people in the New Testament church who God had given a unique gift. And these prophets had been given the gift of an insight and an understanding of the word of God. And sometimes, God in his sovereignty would give a direct revelation of his will to these people. 
Now, in, in one sense, you could say we're, we're all prophets, right? Because we can read the word of God, right? We can read it. But this is mediate, right? This is God speaks in scripture, we read it, and we understand the word of God. But these prophets in the New Testament times received word directly from God. And there were a number of these in the New Testament church. And this is what we call prophets. They received direct revelations of the word of God. Now, these prophets, my friends, could be men and women. God also would speak directly to women in this way. You can go back to Acts chapter 2, where it says, your, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Now, in the New Testament church, when the women prophesied, when they shared the prophecies that God had given them, there were rules, right? They had to be under the oversight of the elders, right? That's, by the way, the elders is what was restricted to men, right? Not that God wouldn't speak directly to women and men, but they, they had to be under the oversight of elders, and they had to cover their head as a sign and a token of their respect to God. Now, these were prophets. These were people who received revelation from God, both immediately through understanding the written word of God, but also immediately, directly, just as I'm speaking to you immediately, right? There's nothing standing between us. Now, this was a prophet. Now, Agabus is the name of one of these prophets, and you see that God gave him a revelation, right? Agabus stood up and began to indicate by the Spirit that there would certainly be a great famine all over the world. And that famine took place in the reign of Claudius. Now, this fits in exactly with what Barnabas is trying to do in Antioch, right? Barnabas is trying to ensure that the Christians in Antioch are established in the teachings of Jesus. That's why they're first called Christians, right? Christians, because they're followers of Christ. They're students, disciples of Christ. And so we have Christians. Now, these prophets come down from Jerusalem to assist in this work of catechizing of training these new Christians in the teachings of Jesus. And what a wonderful gift that must have been for Barnabas to have these prophets come and to assist him in this work. Now, the last thing in the outline, number four, the last point here in the exposition of this text is zealous for good works. Because we see in the first place that Agabus announces this famine, which was a good work in itself, right? He didn't keep that to himself. He announced it. And then we read of the saints in Antioch who would have been probably, uh, not probably, who would have been wealthier than the saints in Jerusalem. Saints in Jerusalem probably were being chased and harassed something terrible because of the persecution. So what saints were left in Jerusalem? The saints in Antioch take a collection and they send it by the hands of Barnabas and Saul to the elders in Jerusalem. So zealous for good works. The faith of the Christians in Antioch was not just words, it was not just empty talk. It made itself manifest in good works, as Jesus had certainly taught them to do. Well, there's a lot there, isn't there, in that text. A very interesting material. And now as we think about applying these things, my friends, I want to first consider the critical need for teaching in our churches. And I know that this is something we take very seriously in our own churches, in our own denomination, in our own tradition, the critical need for teaching in the churches. Why? Why do we spend so much time catechizing our youth? Why do we spend so much time teaching even the young children the stories of the Bible? They color pictures of Daniel in the lion's den, right? 
and then on through the, the, the catechism and Sunday school classes and the confession of faith class, and then even the, the, the style and the character of preaching that we appreciate and value in our churches is a very teaching-oriented kind of ministry, right? And the ladies get together for Bible studies and, and all the different things that happen in the, in the church. It comes down to one question, my friends. It comes down to one question. How do we remain true to Jesus? This was the aim of Barnabas going to Antioch in the first place. And I have to think now that if Barnabas came to the Covenant United Reformed Church in Kalamazoo, that when he walked through those doors, it wouldn't be long before he would start to make inquiry. Is this congregation being true to the teachings of Jesus? I find it interesting that in our church order, we have exactly this that takes place. Only a couple months ago, two, three months ago, Pastor Noble and Pastor Admiral came and sat down with the council and asked these very questions. In fact, these, these questions are not private. You can see the questions they asked. And they asked these questions to us. And we had to answer them. And they made inquiry. Is this congregation tracking, staying true to the teachings of Jesus. And so that's why it's such a point of emphasis in our church that we consider the need of teaching. Now, the next thing to say about the, the, the need for teaching in the church is to understand its order. Because let's be uh, honest, right? Teaching isn't the only thing that is needed in a church, right? And yet, teaching does have a, a special place in the church. And here I would compare the teaching that takes place, the doctrine of a church, to the foundation of a building. The teaching in the church is foundational. Are there other things needed in a building than a foundation? Of course. You need walls. You need a roof. You need a heating, cooling system, an electrical system, whatever. All these different things that make a building to be functional. But there is something unique about the foundation, isn't there? And you know, my friends, that if, if, uh, if the builder uh, builds the, uh, a building and the foundation is maybe just off by just a, a tiny bit, that little difference in the foundation becomes multiplied as you go up, right? Now when you go to build the wall, there might be a, 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 a bad measurement or an off measurement in the wall. And then it gets transferred onto the roof. And in fact, the, 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 the more it goes along, the wider it might get. And in the same way, my friends, the teaching in the church ensures that all the other things in the church, well, let's go back to these things. Let's say the, the ministry of the Missions and Evangelism Committee. Well, what is the message that they're going to bring? If it's just a little bit off, then we look to the foundation. The teaching is off. And we look to Barnabas to come to our church and to correct us on that. In the same way, you look at the, work of the, of the rest of the work of the church, right? And all these different things that take place, both within the church and without the church. Without that foundation in place, it begins to go awry. Our young people go off to college. They encounter professors there who begin to teach them something wildly different than what they heard in church. Well, when the teaching is true to the teaching of Jesus in the church, then they have ground to stand on. They have a foundation. And we hope and pray to God that they won't be moved from it. I think that's also why there's such an emphasis in this church on teaching the young people of the church, the children, the very youngest children, because we want them to be established at the start of their days. 
you, you, we, it's something I, I, I've heard other ministers, and I've seen it in my own life. It seems like when there's an error uh, in the life of a person, they, they, they begin to believe something that is erroneous. And maybe at first it doesn't seem to be so serious, but error never seems to stay alone. It, it, it seems to like a snowball. It seems to multiply. And one error gives birth to another and to another until pretty soon the most wildly hysterical ideas are adopted by a person. And, and, and the error seems to multiply. And so that's, that's why, my friends, Paul will say to Timothy later, give attention to teaching. And here in our passage, so clearly, Barnabas bringing Paul, then the prophets coming from Jerusalem, all with one goal, to make sure that these people get a start on the right foot, that they're on the right path, and Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And for an entire year, you think they would have stopped for the summer vacation, right? No, for an entire year, they pushed on with teaching the people in Antioch the gospel. And I have to say, my friends, that there is seemed to be a, a great reluctance to do this kind of teaching in, in churches today. Uh, there, there's, there's, there's churches that focus so much on practical mission kind of work. And, and in many respects do amazing things in that regard. But this order of a foundation of teaching is often de-emphasized in a way that is very unhealthy and in a way, I believe, that is dishonoring to God. Well, they say, because as soon as we start talking about doctrine, people start arguing and they start fighting and quarreling about different points of doctrine. Well, that's a problem too. There needs to be love and charity, right? And an understanding that people will see things differently, especially on the more minor issues. That can't stop us, my friends, from giving attention to the teaching and the doctrine of the church. And so I think we must be somewhat critical of churches. churches, Some some churches not even having a doctrinal statement of any kind and making absurd statements like, well, we just believe what the Bible teaches or we just believe Christ. Well, as soon as you say, well, which Christ do you believe in? Immediately now they have to start using doctrine. Well, then let's not be afraid of that or embarrassed of that or ashamed of that in some way. We believe What we know, we believe what we understand. We don't understand it perfectly or comprehensively, but we know the truth that God's given us, and we make every effort to understand it properly and correctly, and we place a priority on that. Well, my friends, in the second place then, names and titles, because we read... Oh, there's one thing I I see in the outline. The Acts 11, verse 29, or Acts 11, verse 26. Again, we see in Acts 11, verse 29... The disciples having this practical kind of outreach in their work, right? They do good works. And my my point with putting that on the outline is that we as churches should be balanced on those things, right? That there should be Acts 11.26, teaching. There should also be in our church Acts 11.29. And if we're deficient in either of those, then we should be self-critical enough to look at ourselves and to say, hey, we're falling short in this regard. Be it Acts 11.29 right? Ministering to the relief of impoverished people. Or Acts 11.26, the teaching. You might say, are we an Acts 11.26 church or an Acts 11 verse 29 church? Well, I hope we can be both. Well, let's move on to the second application here, names and titles. Because we read that now for the first time, 
Christians, or the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Why? My friends in the Roman Empire during this time, all different groups, no different than our own day, all different groups, right? Group thinking is nothing new today. And there were the group of the Herodians, right? There were the group of the Caesarians, the people who clung to Caesar, and all these different groups in the Roman Empire. And now the disciples of Jesus get a name, Christ, Christians, people who follow Christ. And at first you can believe that it was a derogatory term, right? It was a term meant to insult, a term meant to ridicule. And yet in the providence of God, it has become the most common title of Christians throughout the world. Christians, those who partake, those who are joined and united to Christ. And this happened first in Antioch. And so that leads us then to consider what a precious thing this is, this name. What a powerful thing it is. And, in the, and, and when you think about this, my friends, and when you think about our own appreciation of what it means to be a Christian, take your life now. And set it next to one of those Gentiles who came to Christ in Antioch. Can you imagine, my friends, the joy that must have filled their hearts when they looked at their past life? When they looked at their past life, when they looked at the sins that they had engaged in frequently, the adultery, the lying, the cheating, the stealing, and all these things that marked their life, the hopeless chasing of happiness, all the different philosophies that circulated through the, the Roman Empire at this time. And then they thought of the joy that they had, that they experienced in their own soul, when they realized that all the sins that they had committed were wiped away in the blood of Christ. And now they could call themselves Christians. Christians. Just like I, I, I tried to, to point out when we read the law, we often come to that point in our life where we lose our sense of the wonderful gift that is given us in that. But now in the, in the second place, congregation, we can see that not just what, the, what God's given us in the law, but the name that he's given us. That we sit here today as Christians, as those who are joined to Christ. And can you think of the amazing fact that that is? And I know that's more difficult for us because we grew up with this understanding most of us, I think, grew up with that understanding that we are Christians, that we are washed in the blood of Christ. And so the enthusiasm that we uh, should have for the great privilege in calling ourselves Christians can begin to grow cold. <clears throat> and my friends, just as we saw earlier in the law, Paul gives us this. He gives a way to, a way to think about this. He says in verse, he says in verse, in 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 9, he writes, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? So he starts right there, my friends. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. They have no hope of eternal life. Their death is their end and brings them into greater punishment. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived, neither fornicators. And again, you, you, you got to drop fornicators. That's not me. Nor idolaters, nor adulterers. Then you have this word, nor effeminate, which 
Sorry to say, my friends, but that means the uh, female side of a homosexual relationship. I'll just leave it at that. Nor homosexuals, that's referring to the male side. Nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then these astonishing words, my friends, and I give it to you now. As Christians today in Covenant United Reformed Church, such were some of you, says Paul. Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. Let the truth of that sink in, my friends, that when we stand here today and we call ourselves Christians, that we also can say, as Paul said to the Corinthian people, such were some of you. Now, very likely we didn't grow up literally committing the acts of which I just read. And yet, my friends, no less the grace of God that rescued us, perhaps from our own pharisaical self-righteousness. But the grace of God came down upon us and snatched us from the same hell and from the same misery and from the same hopelessness. And today we sit here in these pews, under this roof, under the cross of Christ. We sit here, my friends, we call ourselves Christians. And I want you to sense something this morning, dear friends, of what that really means, of what what is really entailed in that title that we call over this church and the people who sit here. When Paul says, such were some of you, in other words, all of you, all of us, were at one time in sin and evil and walking in a path of sin that would have led us finally to eternal condemnation. And such were some of you. Such were all of you. But God came down and by the powerful grace of Christ rescued us from that. And that's why today we can sit here and call ourselves Christians. My friends, does the grace of God still amaze you? Is that a wonder? Has that become a wonder in your life? A miracle? And is it still that of what God has done for us in Christ? And I understand, my friends, that having grown up in these things, they can become very routine, very common, very normal. But I hope today that you sense something of the beauty and of the glory of the grace of God, that we can stand here today and call ourselves Christians. So that when we sing the song, Amazing Grace, that we really can feel it in our own soul, that the grace of God is amazing, beyond description. May God grant that for you, my friends, and for me, for his name's sake. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, we confess to our shame that our love and appreciation and enthusiasm for your law often droops. It grows cold. And now also, Lord, in an even greater way, the beauty of the privilege, the wonder of the miracle that we can call ourselves Christians today that we can gather here in this place under the cross of Christ, even as the Gentile believers did in Antioch. Lord, that's such a wonder. It's such a miracle. There are hundreds of thousands all around us who know nothing of these things. And yet your sovereign grace has snatched us from a life of hopeless misery, a life locked away in bondage to sin. And you've brought us into this place. Lord, give us to sing with all of our hearts amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Lord, may we sing that song with renewed vigor 
and with renewed enthusiasm for the privilege of what it means to be a child of God, a child of the King. Lord, I pray that you would bless us then as we return to our homes. Give us a good Lord's Day together with our families. And we pray that you would bring us back again in this evening. That you would bless us, Lord, to sit under the word of God with joy and with gladness. Also this evening as we consider Pentecost, something that we've considered so many times already in this series. That again, Lord, you would give us to see the Holy Spirit and the wonder and the beauty of his work of bringing us and of joining us to Jesus Christ giving us this great privilege of calling ourselves Christians. Lord, we ask all this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Let's turn to number 265 in the blue hymnal. From Psalm 123. To thee, O Lord, I lift my eyes, O thou enthroned above the skies. As servants watch their master's hand, or maidens by their mistress stand, so to the Lord our eyes we raise until his mercy he displays. And what follows then in the two verses of 265 in the blue hymnal.
receive the blessing of the Lord and go in peace. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.